to some degree, the banking industry can only make money in one way, and that's through risk. And typically, risk uh, comes through the provision of credit. And it doesn't matter how exciting your current account product is, there's just not enough money in it. You have to ape the traditional banking sector by moving into credit and the associated risk that comes along with it. Hello, I'm Daniel Cronin, and this is the Finterview. Uh, I'd like to welcome a very special guest today, Chris Jones, the Managing Director of PSE Consulting. Chris, great to have you on the podcast. How are you doing? Yeah, very good. Uh, pleasure to be here. Chris is one of the more interesting characters that uh, I've uh, had the pleasure of interacting with in my time in financial technology. One of the things most fintechs are very, very conscientious of is how do they scale their business and how do they scale the not only their client base but size of client as they grow and it, it, it seems to me that PSE Consulting seems to be at the nexus of every large fintech deal where there's a where there's a complex buying procedure and and a sophisticated payments flow involved so we were we were very excited to meet him and learn a little bit more about what PSE Consulting does uh, on a day-to-day basis. Chris, so I've got a number of things I want to run through with you today. Um, we'll we'll start with some topical stuff, and if we go down any rabbit holes, then you know me, I love a rabbit hole. So just to begin with, um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure, by all means. So I've been with PSE about, uh, well, coming up for 20 years now, can you believe it? And I've been the managing director the last three or four of those. As a firm, uh, and I suppose for me personally, the last 20 years of my life, we spend a lot of our time dealing with the complexities that you alluded to earlier on. So that's either within the the merchant community, big names, brands out there like you know eBay or Booking.com or Google or Meta, or within the payment um, supplier community. Those are, are big acquirers and uh, the big card schemes. We get asked questions by our clients about how to do difficult things. Sometimes that's about entering new markets, launching new products, reaching new customers. But it's also about how to manage their supply chain, how to innovate more quickly. So we've we've been around long enough to see you know various things uh, succeed and fail, and various sort of hype cycles on uh, on a whole range of different words. And, you know, no different uh, as we are at the moment with uh, crypto or orchestration, L- lots of kind of good topics to get our teeth into, some of which have uh, continued and thrived. Gateways, payment gateways being a good example, Stripe and Adyen. Other things have fallen along the wayside, stored value, prepaid, both sort of disappeared as, as products. So, um, yeah, it, it keeps us entertained dealing with all of this complexity and change. I suppose... One of the things that interests me about a person in your space is you deal with the the problems at scale that most fintechs could uh, only dream about having. And I think it gives you a special insight into seeing recurring thematic uh, and, and system-wide problems in an industry where often only the successful get to get to worry about those. So you, you offer some some major insights into painful problems that would be nice to have for, for younger fintechs and painful problems that everyone hates to have after you've you've kind of gone through that scale issue. The value of death, as, a, as so many in Silicon Valley like to call it. Just focusing on, on the here and now for a second, I wondered if you could give us a, any of your thoughts on 
some of the recent changes in the fintech sector in the last six to six to nine months? Yeah, I mean, I think the fintech sector has experienced a bit of a a wake-up call, and that's come from a couple of different directions. I think there's the, um, you know, the funding side of any startup business, where they can get the money from, where private equity firms or venture capital firms are investing their funds. There have been some new names on the block, um, like, you know, artificial intelligence has come along as the next big thing. I think also some of the big sponsors have changed within the market. You know, some of the names I mentioned earlier on, the Googles, uh, the Apples, who had been at the forefront of, of fintech innovation, either on their own or in partnership with, with other entities, they are also going through their own growing pain. So you've got a, you know, a series of challenges either on the supply side and also on the demand side that are coming together to make you know, life extra hard, I think, at the moment for, for the for the startup community. But, you know, as any, you know, good economist will tell you, it's these these periods of hardship that really kind of sort out the wheat from the chaff. And those that can actually make it through are, more, are most likely to be what were always the better companies and probably also will be toughened by the experience. But, you know, but it's really hard, I think, at the moment when you have procurement cycles of large businesses that may well take, you know, a year or so when they are also going through headcount changes that that slows everything down. Right. And the ambition of all small firms is to, you know, move quickly and break things. And um, it's quite difficult to do that in a world where your customer is not moving as quickly as they would like. And also, again, come to the supply side when you have perhaps your investors who are getting itchy, worrying about what they're going to do. The funds may be coming up to maturity. How are they going to realize value, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it's a tough time. Absolutely. And what's your general take on, so what, what's the last six and nine months have been sort of doom and gloom? Prior to that, it was... Um, it was the wild, wild west in terms of uh, assessing uh, value on on PE ratio. And any any fintech that raised in, say, the heady, heady days of 21, let's say, uh, I don't know, was it Marketa, uh, raised uh, IPO 21, 22 at a high valuation even then. Do you, do you think there's opportunities for companies that raise that at, at the top of the cycle to come in and either gobble up as uh, strategic acquisitions or or just worry less about broadening their product because there's less people that they have to compete with in the market how do you think that might impact yeah and i'm sure it'll be a little bit of both we are involved in a couple of transactions at the moment where there are fire fire sales going on where either uh, investors are looking to offload assets because they, they don't believe that they're ever going to get an appropriate level of return or indeed where strategic investors have made purchases in the past that they are living to regret. So, you know, we can certainly see that uh, period of consolidation occurring. You know, as, as I said earlier on, that good companies will take advantage of this either organically, you know, moving into the niches left by other players or inorganically by buying up assets, hopefully at big discounts to some of the multiples that you were mentioning earlier on. I think some companies perhaps do have the benefit of raising raising funds relatively cheaply and being able to take advantage of that i think 
in the startup community, that's true. Um, or, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call Marketer a startup any longer, but, you know, in the, in the more innovative space. But, you know, you, you only need to see what the other end of the spectrum, you know, the Apple has been doing with its cash mountain. You know, it, it is investing heavily in a whole range of, of areas, including, you know, its forays into financial services. A whole range of products have come out in the recent past. So all of these things, I think, are good for the industry, right? I, I mean, I can say this as a dispassionate observer, you know, who doesn't have substantial sums invested in any particular business and, and intentionally so you know it, it's great for the industry to go through these these periods of consolidation and innovation still occurs at a slightly different rate and in different places you know uh, when i gave the intro on our firm the balance between going out and doing exciting crazy new stuff doing what i do today better definitely swings right and we've got a lot more on our plate of making my current assets sweat harder much less time on can i go out and do something crazy for a new customer in a new market and you know i think businesses who are too wedded to one of those two models either don't grow quickly enough in good times or shrink excessively in in bad times so having a proposition as a startup company that allows you to go in and say i save you money as much as i can get you into new markets that's some of the special source that good companies have and perhaps poor companies don't and just just going down the food chain in terms of value expressed a little bit here the vast majority of fintechs um certainly i would say 99 percent of the unicorn fintechs uh have a high degree of exposure to the retail market so your, your monzos your starlings your revoluts um all of them um scaled uh, to the size that they did uh, off of a consumer offering and a lot of the new combatants trying to assert them or, or, or take their place whether whether they're b2b or, or b2c at some point you need to be adding value to the to the man in the street with everything that's happened with silicon valley with concerns over you know the most successful startups um Internally, Revolut have obviously had their own controversies in recent times. Do you think startups trying to challenge those guys have it easier or or, or have it hard enough? Uh, on the one hand, you've got the the struggles of, of the uh, incumbents. On the other hand, if you're a man in the street today or, or or someone walking down the street, would you be comfortable having your cash in Lloyd's TSB, or would you want it in an exciting startup that might give you all of these extra features that? Lloyd's TSB can't. I'm obviously alluding to some of the bank failings uh, and bank failures over recent months. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the irony is that from a, a safety perspective, having your money in an e-money institution or a payment institution is actually safer because all those funds have to be safeguarded. They can't be lent against. So from a consumer perspective, some of these smaller firms uh, who aren't banks have better security. I, you know, I think there are always concerns about if I leave my money with a, a fintech, even if that's just you know my monthly spending pot, right? Not necessarily my mortgage or uh, my lifetime savings. That you know those entities may not exist in uh, you know six months' time, and I'm sure that holds a lot of the market back. We have discussions here in the office about, you know, would you put your money in a Starling or a Monzo or would you rather keep it with a, a financial institution? I think the interesting thing is the threat presented by 
the Monzos and the Revoluts of this world has forced those incumbent entities to up their game. And so even if you haven't switched, you have had an, the advantage of having those players around. And I think the interesting thing will be that, you know, younger people who perhaps never formed a relationship with one of the more kind of traditional high street entities, will they say, well, I'm still continue to happy. That's uh, I'm still happy to continue to hold those funds with, with a Monzo. I, I don't need a relationship with any of these, these big entities. So there's, as I said, there's a question for the kind of the older consumer about, well, do I use them or not? Then the young consumer comes along and knows nothing else. And I think the big challenge for those traditional entities, and, and this happens, you know, if, if we take uh, the example of credit cards and buy now, pay later, yeah, there are lots of consumers out there who have never needed a credit card because they can always lean on buy now, pay later when they're looking for an extra source of credit. Now, that means there's a whole bunch of customers with whom traditional credit card issuers have no relationship whatsoever. And that is potentially an existential threat for those providers. And as you have you know, alluded to, um, you know, someone like a Starling uh, or a Monzo started off in an innately loss-making bit of the payments business. The current account always made loss. They have had to find their feet by lending by moving into mortgage and into insurance and into savings and all of the stuff that a traditional incumbent, you know, makes their money from. And whilst the current account, um, you know, holding a current account may not create a threat for, for the big entities, taking away their lending, taking away uh, the savings, that is a much more substantial issue for those big entities. And for those customers who never had a relationship with a big name brands, sucking out money from the bottom does potentially create some very long-term structural issues for those entities. I'm sure they are hoping that customers will either, as they get older and they earn more money and they want to keep that with more traditional brands, they will migrate their brand allegiance, or that those companies, the, the startups, aren't um, agile enough, um, or the funding runs out before they can move into these other areas. I think history says that there'll be a bit of a mix that some of those old brands will disappear and you know the number of brands that operate uh, in the UK now is much less than it used to be uh, following the 2008 crisis um, and some of those small entities won't succeed and the question is who are they going to be the winners and, and that's a very difficult question to answer if, uh, if I could answer it then I should be in the investment game not in, in the payments game. Super interesting points there. Well, there was about 15 or 16 interesting points. Um, my head is uh, unusually small, so I, I, I captured two for me to discuss. One thing is customer inertia. And you made the point, most people born in these 50, 60, 70s, 80s, 90s, they will continue to bank with whoever their mummy and daddy uh, opened a bank account with. Whether that bank gets the bulk of their um, finances or it's just there as like a, a limp appendage that they've never gotten rid of, it'll still exist. Because of consumer inertia, it's there. I'm used to it. It's, it's formed a habit, and I can't, I can't be bothered to change, mainly because these new entrants don't actually offer quite enough to, to push me into leaving that bank and joining a new bank. They might push me enough to open a secondary bank account, but in... Mm. But it absolutely is that. So the first point is, how do people tackle customer inertia? And then the second thing that is probably more interesting for me now that you've mentioned it is, you used the word tradition. I would love to see some sort of independent research on what it what constitutes tradition, both from a 
number of people doing it probably has a has a relevance. If if only one person is doing it, it's not that traditional. It's just you being weird. But also, there's probably a timeline that something needs to have existed and people participating in for it to become traditional. And so, you made the point: the younger generation now um, will more likely have um, opened an account or or access to financial service with their mobile rather than having walked into a branch bored out of their brain when they're 11 years old with their parents. And you said, as they grow up, will they want to move to a traditional bank? There's an assertion or there's an axiom there that the current banks, and I wouldn't disagree with you, are not traditional. But how long does a star, like project yourself 200 years into the future, starling, I I can almost imagine it be carved in stone and be a, a white ivory ancient bank uh, that is the trusted bank. Monzo, I, I don't, for some reason, just because of the Z, perhaps, I don't see that name. Um, I see it in ne- neon blue. I don't see it in, you know, chiseled into into marble like you would the Bank of England. But the question is, how do these banks become traditional? Is it in their uh, interest to ever be perceived as traditional? Or is it better to be the, the cutting edge? And that's a, it's a good question. Um, I, I think some of it is is to do with their conscious brand positioning, right? That Monzo, partly because it was really the first successful mobile first entity, it had its hot coral card, and customers around London were proud to get that card out, right? And you know, there's been history of that in the past. First Direct had an equivalent sort of very positive relationship with its customers when it's launched and to some degree still does. And so it positioned itself as consciously different. I think Starling, as you said, has perhaps tried to strike that middle ground between a more traditional banking entity and, um, you know, the, the exciting, well, hot coral element of the, of the payments world. As to whether one will survive longer than the other and whether they'll keep their identity, I don't know, it's, it's, it's difficult to say. Um, uh, the, the banking industry in particular tends to have very long tenures, right? Um, you know, it, it, you know, in strong contrast to a lot of other areas, e- even in the payments world, right? Big traditional banks, JPMC or Barclays existed well before v- even Visa and MasterCard uh, were all at war, uh, uh, around. And, you know, Apple is a very kind of Johnny come lately to, uh, to the game. So, you know, I think it's a, there's a conscious and an unconscious kind of evolution that goes on. The, the reality is that um, the payments and to some degree the banking industry can only make money in one way, and that's through risk. And typically risk uh, comes through the provision of credit. And it doesn't matter how exciting your current account product is, there's just not enough money in it. You have to ape the traditional banking sector by moving into credit and the associated risk that comes along with it. Otherwise, you will not exist. So even though the brand may look exciting, the services that they provide inevitably are the same. And I think that that's the kind of crux of the issue, that if if I know that I can only make money in risk, then... What I gradually do, like any good entity, is I begin to put processes around managing that risk. And that innately mitigates against change, right? You don't want to, 
endanger the uh, you know the area of risk. So that's what traditional banks have done, right? They've gradually built layers and layers of protection around that risk entity. And you know, it doesn't matter whether it's in neon or it's in carved stone. Both of those entities, if they exist, will probably be as risk averse <laughs> as the current traditional providers. And um, just marrying that with customer inertia, then I think most people will admit the reason they bank with who they bank with. Um, let's say if you're sub twenty, if if, you, if you're over thirty five, let's say most people will admit my main bank is the one that my parents got me when I was a kid because they're, it's not like in America where you've got hundreds of community banks and some of them you bank with just because you know the guy who owns it and and some of them you would leave in a heartbeat because their service truly is that awful. In the UK, the there was four or five main banks and they were good enough, like these are world-class banks, good enough never to have a, a strong reason to leave them. And so you, you never did. Um, but also there's some sort of subconscious memory of it taking an age, um, maybe having to go in on two separate days with documents and, and wait in a queue to get to the cashier's desk to be given an appointment to sit down with pers- the only person who was wearing a suit and tie and then talking about your, your plans and giving them your passport and coming back the next day and then waiting for something to be posted in the mail and then getting that thing posted in the mail, going to the ATM and t- typing in a code and where your, your, your bank account was live. That is not a process anyone wants to experience ever, never mind ever again. And um, hmm. the benefit of that is it's hard come, hard go. That's the reason why people aren't leaving these banks in droves. And one of the advantages the, the incumbents um, brought in is easy come. It's super, super easy to get back to now. It's um, more, more easy than ever. But do you think by making it so easy to come, you are diminishing the value of customer inertia? And whilst you're bored thousands of customers, they won't be wedded to you because it wasn't a hard slug to get your services. And now there are 15 other services that exist that are just as easy to get to. And by by default, easy come, easy go. Do you think, like, I'm talking about lifetime value of a customer here. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's an interesting question. I, you know, you're definitely right to say that there's lots of inertia in the current account world. But I think there's also inertia in a whole bunch of other aspects of, of financial services, not least in the payments world. If you look around how people pay online in different countries, uh, it's remarkably difficult to get them to change, even if it is to something that is quicker and easier. In the payments world, there's lots of inertia too. Customers don't like changing, even if that process is relatively clunky. We were doing some work yesterday on some new products that have launched in Poland. Um, for the Polish market, these are considerably better than what they have uh, at the moment. But if we compare it to where we are here in the UK in the experience with cards and paying online, it still looks pretty, pretty clunky. People in Poland are very happy that they're moving away from something that was even worse. I think there's a belief that everybody will end up in the same place, that because things get gradually easier, whether it's onboarding to a bank account or paying with a particular payment type, that that we will all end up in the same place, that the best payment product, the best current account will always win. But I don't think that's true, right? That this inertia means that 
you people will stay with the relationships that they have because actually they're not too bad new customers come in and there's a, like a, a g- gradual generational shift but because it's a relatively slow thing it allows incumbents to adapt their service offering you know the threat as we discussed earlier on of monzo has been enough to get those traditional banks to change what they're doing and even though they may not be able to move quickly because of this risk inertia thing that we discussed earlier on they can move within a five to ten year horizon to keep hold of, of those customer groups so you know but but i think maybe they come back to your kind of question about does friction have some value in and of itself i know that's a very good question and you know i, I listen to spotify uh, all the time is my relationship with music the same as it was when i used to put a cd in or a tape in or that you know the record player i have at home no it's not right it's a very casual relationship it comes and goes uh, you know do, is the music industry successfully adapting to my changing relationship with music or is it just becoming a very ephemeral uh, relationship that, that both parties you know the artist creating the music and the the user lose out um, you know i, I suppose yes I'm, I'm sure that is a problem and in the cards world or in, in the payments world more generally that ephemeral relationship that i have with my my service provider does that create a problem yes it does right I don't have that stickiness that perhaps I once had, but maybe it's just different and, and maybe we're being too traditional and saying, oh, well, just because it was difficult in the past, that has some inherent value and we'll stay with it. So I, I think um, you know, we, we're going to have to evolve. Customers will gradually change, some faster than others. And, you know, the, you, you get events like the pandemic, which force whole cohorts of people to fundamentally change the way in which they do it to move online, to start buying their shopping, to start using contactless in-store. So sometimes you do get these kind of big stochastic changes within the market that get everybody to move in a particular direction. But otherwise, I think you're just, you're just going to have a series of parallel paths that exist in different countries with different customer groups. And, you know, I'm sure uh, the millennials today will look back on their children and say, Oh, why do you do it this way? We did it, you know, the way we did it was perfectly good. Um, you're just making change for the sake of it. Makes sense. I'd I never considered the Spotify analogy. I absolutely think an industry can be harmed by too much choice um, as it, uh, it tends to erode uh, consumer loyalty. If, if everything's there, not only do you want to try a little bit of everything, you form no attachment with, with any of them. And, uh, I think there's something that fintech can learn from that. Perhaps, perhaps there's a a substrate that will benefit from that by being the access point or the infrastructure that enables all of these different apps to proliferate. Which I guess takes. So us- just pick up on that yeah. uh, on that on that point. You know, I think there is there's that there can be services that have too little friction. That if you look at how easy it is to onboard, how easy it is to do something. Sometimes that creates insecurity on the consumer side that they like a bit of friction. They like to know there's some checking going on. They like to know that it's um, it's got some oversight, etc. So I think the important thing is to not always strive for or strive to remove friction, but to recognize that in it can be an important part of the service that you provide that you know we do a lot of work in the SaaS sector at the moment around embedded finance 
that whilst engineers love, you know, really great documentation, they really love uh, good API uh, structures, they love FAQs, they like, you know, what people are doing with chat GPT to, to make it easier to find hold of information. They also want a highly qualified engineer at the other end of the telephone that they've got a question they want to talk to. So, uh, and okay, that has a bit of friction associated with it, but it's, it's the right bit at the right time. It's not just saying if I move everything online and I make it really easy to search, that'll solve a hundred percent of my use cases. So, you know, it's delivering the right level of service and the right level of friction at the right point. But the hard bit, I think, is to understand where it adds value and where it doesn't. And that's, I think, where, you know, maybe coming back to the Starling and Monzo discussion we we're having earlier on, where um, does Monzo and Starling introducing an extra level of service, where does that add value and where does it not? Where is it just sort of adding features for the sake of it? Yeah, it, and that's a re- really interesting point, actually. Um, I suppose if you look at friction, not as um, the challenge to access, but part of the user's journey and experience, there are industries that actually t- look at this as a value. I'm, I'm not sure if this is true, uh, but um, I, I'm sure it might have even been you who told me. I, I can't remember. Um, Apple, when when you buy a new physical product from them, apparently their design team spent a long time um, thinking about how difficult should we make this product to get into? Um, Because there's the annoying one end of the market where you buy a children's toy and after about 16 to 17 minutes of trying to get into it, you say, screw it, get the scissors, which is not a pleasant experience, especially when your three-year-old is jumping on your shoulder going, daddy, why can't you open it? And uh, well, I'm looking at your wrist. I believe you have Apple products. Uh, do you? They, um, yeah. they have almost that suction um, box where you have to try and shake the bottom out, and it feels extremely high quality. But it's also it's adding friction to you accessing that product. But that quality suggests high quality engineering, and so they've they've deliberately added in friction to access for a very small part of your user experience which builds an expectation of high quality. Um, in the video game industry, you, you see um, you see that they've had to have been dealing with this for 30 years. Um, it's called the load screen. And I've seen ma- many different takes on it. It, it, it. Some people just say loading. And uh, if you have a, a battered PlayStation CD-ROM drive, that load screen, you can make a cup of tea and, and still come back and it won't be ready. Um, others have tackled this by throwing in tips and information about the game. Others allow you to have little animations. And um, I guess it's interesting if you apply that to a, a payments context, where can you add, where is friction necessary and how can you make it a point of value rather than a point of contention? That's something I never actually considered before. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, it happens in the retail world all the time, you if you go into a supermarket, there are now probably as many self-service checkout terminals as there are assisted terminals. If you go into a Gucci store, you won't see anything like that, right? Gucci is about the service. It's about understanding the product and all of those other things. Um, so, you know, uh, the retail world has identified that 
the the payment the point of payment is an important part of the service whether it should be very slick and easy because all you're doing is buying your sandwich at lunchtime or because you're buying buying a ten thousand dollar watch or a ten thousand dollar handbag actually you want to be able to offer the the right payment types at the right time that you know perhaps it's above your credit limit for your credit card so how do you deal with that um there are some specific use cases i'm aware of that say ferrari or aston martin have to deal with when you put a deposit down for these cars and how you make that an engaging experience so you know even in the payments world where you know everybody is used to tapping this phone and authenticating against this phone that authentication process is also friction and it can be good friction it builds confidence that you know i am who i say i am that when i'm now shopping online that little turning wheel is something that builds confidence for for, for the customer um so the magic source is to figure out how and when those things are applied to create value as opposed to being uh, uh, you know friction that uh, that is appropriate to uh, to remove um and human nature likes those bits of friction you know there is a reason why we um you know still use metal knives and forks and we use glass and we use you know china plates right they it could all be plastic but actually people quite like it and they actively choose something that breaks more easily that doesn't last as long that chips that you know you have to that takes ages to wash and whatever it may be and i think you know we are exploring those kind of questions within the payments world and even in 100 or 200 years there will probably still be intentional aspects of friction it's like risk we were talking about risk earlier on that typically many businesses try to remove risk entirely from a service but actually there's an opportunity to monetize risk and introduce risk at the right point in a service where everybody understands what it is and it's priced appropriately it doesn't have to be something that you constantly seek to remove never considered that and putting a, a, a t- taking a risk a, and looking at it from from an entirely different angle now well, one of the reasons I was excited to have you on is your your experience with working with both top tier um, fintechs and banks and top tier consumers of those products. So the large telecoms, the large travel companies, the uh, anyone with a, a large enough um, number of customers to to warrant their very own payments division, I, I suppose, tends to have sophisticated payment flows. So just looking at it from a risk perspective again, forget credit. Well, actually, credit forms a part of this. What is the prism through which a large company looks at potential vendors to to support them on uh, all of these weird and wonderful um, innovations when they're when they're looking at vendors who can support them to build these products? What should they be thinking about on what are the most important things? What are the least important things? And what what aspects of vendor due diligence do you recommend? big players look at in in younger more agile suppliers yeah and and it's a very important question because you know there will be a tendency for large risk averse entities to want to engage with other large risk averse entities and those large risk averse entities um, can tick all of the compliance boxes around capitalization headcount resilience all of those other great things but then they don't have the sorts of services that you know solve complex use cases i think 
you know, procurement functions need to recognize that not all suppliers need to fit into the same box, right? That you have a tiered set of uh, requirements that are driven by the degree of risk that a particular product launch is associated with. You know, if you are going to launch a product that touches every customer and every transaction, you need to be absolutely bulletproof. And we were talking about orchestration earlier on, payment orchestration. Payment orchestration is a very awkward situation where there are lots of fintechs out there with lots of cool technology, but in order for it to work, it has to touch every customer and every transaction. You need to be extremely cautious about how you launch those sorts of products. Other end of the scale, I'm launching a new product in a new market and I'm you know, putting something more complicated together. There, I think the risk assessment needs to be very different. You need to be able to say, you know, it's a, a distinct customer group. I'm going to launch in a, a gradual manner. I'm going to test and learn. I want to do that with more interesting and exciting customers. I will, sorry, partners, I will grow with that partner. So I think there's a, there's a challenge today, which is typically most procurement partners come in assuming that every outcome is the same and they will treat everything as if it was going to be universally rolled out. I think perhaps in some cases they're stuck a little bit in between, which is a really poor outcome, which is that they under-anticipate the level of risk for those universal products and they over-anticipate the risk associated with the the niche product niche uh, launches. And it could be that when that niche product grows and is very successful, you change your approach. But if you've got a good partnership relationship with the you know the innovative uh, fintech provider they will have grown along with you and we, we know you know you mentioned some of the names earlier on you know as wise and as revolut and as monzo have grown many of their suppliers have grown with them and that partnership has worked out very well i think big uh, enterprise entities need to take the same sort of attitude and now looking at um that exact same problem from uh, from the other way around, if if you're a, a startup or a scale looking to la- land the um, uh, land the proverbial whale, the, the, the large customer, what kind of strategies should you be employing? Um, sir, from speaking to other founders, a lot of them say don't. Um, if especially when you're being capital efficient uh, and targeting anything with a uh, extremely low probability of success. And a long tenor to understand whether whether that uh, whether you're actually going to be able to capitalize on on such a risk it is not ideal. Now, so some companies, core banking platforms, maybe have to do that. The likes of Manbu are going to find it difficult to get an ROI on very young fintech, so they'll target tier two, tier tier one banks. But for but for the average entrepreneur, is is a strategy just scatter gun and try and serve everyone and, and ride the backs of the customers that grow big. Um, I think there's an argument to say um, one of the um, most successful fintech startups in recent memory did did precisely that. Or what, what kind of strategies would you be uh, thinking about? Yeah, no, I think it's probably um, a truism to say you want to back more than one horse, right? That uh, what you want to be able to do is... You, you know, you want to be able to serve some consumers uh, with direct-to-market uh, products. You want to be able to provide a service uh, environment in the B2B world. Starling has, has done very much that, right? They, they have their consumer product, 
they have their corporate product. They also have their outsourced platform. You know, now we say, okay, the consumer product and the SME product are doing very well, but it was a good hedge to have that infrastructure solution if the other ones hadn't, uh, hadn't worked out. I think in our world, which is probably inherently more B2B, I probably have a bias for saying, um, going after the mid and small customers, you know, for 80% of your effort, and then going after 20% of your effort for the, you know, the gorillas out there, the really big ones w- would feel to me right. Direct to consumer products, um, I think are inherently more risky for, for, for that's a personal view. I did partly driven by the fact that I have less, less experience in that, in that particular area. But I think probably the most important thing is to engage with those customers and to listen to them. And even if the sales cycle doesn't lead anywhere with that particular customer, the next time you talk to someone, you must learn from that experience. You must have built in the things that you were missing last time, whether that's the process that I engage them with or the, uh, the extent to which I validate whether there's a real opportunity or is it just a fishing trip? Am I adding product functionality to what I have? Where we see successful companies the characteristic of listening to your customer and building that into your product is the most important characteristic and being able to combine that kind of customer obsession with the drive to build a business that's the really hard thing to do because often what happens is you get a bunker mentality and and creating business saying i think it's right i'm just going to keep going on at this i'm going to keep going on at this they'll realize that it's correct in the end that may be okay internally, but you cannot do that with your customers, whether they be you know any size. So uh, I would say that balance that we're talking about, the portfolio, the 80-20, but the most important characteristic is listening to that customer and building their requirements into your product as best you can. Yeah, I think, I think I'd also add a repeat point um, from your perspective from, from the customer. If, if you are a small fintech trying to target l- larger players, identifying quickly whether your solution needs to work for the entirety of the business uh, or whether your solution is being regarded as a tentative expansion can really uh, have an influence on h- how much energy you, you want to put into that deal. I would argue if you know there's major feature gaps and you're, you're just going whale hunting for the sheer joy of it, that's a bad idea. If you're approaching larger players and being able to contain the expectations of of the customer within the bounds of uh, value that you know um, can be delivered without it becoming a chain of dependencies on other parts of the business, that then have at it. And, and uh, what I mean is, when I when I hear the the sales guys and integrated finance pitching customers. There's genuine excitement um, around what our platform does, but often I'll hear conversations drive into the the realms of possibility rather than um, grounded in the highly probable. If if something is is a possibility in the future, and that forms part of the expectation of a tender, you're you're on thin ice already because as as that gets evaluated in other parts of the company where people haven't had that tangible excitement of seeing your product. They're just going to highlight the gaps. But if you can contain, yes, yes, we can do that, but really where our strengths lie is the thing that you actually contacted us for, and we can worry about every other part of your business thereafter. I think by being able to contain the optimism, you're far more likely to close a deal. 
Yeah, I definitely think that's true. I think the only thing to add would be that if you want to engage with these partners and you know that they have to go out and source those gaps, you know, the gap between the optimism that says, here's the scope that I need and here's what you can currently deliver. If they're going to have to go and get that somewhere else, that pushes extra effort onto them, right? And part of the sales process is to de-risk the sale and the, you know, the product as it gets delivered. I think being able to de-risk the sale by saying, okay, it may not be me that does this, but I've got some third parties here with whom I've previously worked who can fill some of those gaps. That makes the sale easier and it reduces the risk of an expectation gap problem that when you sell it, it's not quite as broad as the customer originally saw, uh, thought. You know, that this aspect of expectations management in the sales process is, is very important, but also in life that you can, um, you know, w when, when you know, where we started this conversation, enterprises tend to have quite complicated requirements and it may be very difficult for any individual supplier to be able to meet all of those complex requirements to have an environment and you know this is where where your business is you know i'm sure gaining success is that it can tie together multiple pieces to make life and make the buying process and the delivery of that service easier and you know one of the most important things that um, the suppliers need to be able to recognize is that like these large entities don't want multiple supplier relationships and complexities in their supply chain. That is inherently risky. The more you can simplify that process, the easier the sale and the easier the implementation and ongoing support. Wise, wise words. Chris, you've given me a lot, of think, lot to think about and I'm sure our listeners are uh, a lot to think about. I just want to thank you very much for your time on the podcast. I, I've really appreciated it. Well, thanks very much for inviting me. Thank you so much. Uh, bye bye. I hope to have you on soon. Cheers. Take care.